Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. It's Monday. We're live. We're back to here to talk to you guys. We're super excited to be here. And uh, hopefully Jeff will be back here shortly. He's finishing up the school year. But Henry and I are here just for you. Please head over to YouTube.com if you're watching. Well, if you're actually, if you're, if you're hearing this, you're already on YouTube. So if you're on YouTube, we want to talk to you. Go ahead and submit your comments, and we will engage this conversation. This is what we like to call the free-form episode, where Henry and I just go into it blind. And so welcome, everybody. Henry, sir, how are you doing tonight? Well, I'm super excited to be here, man. Yeah, me too. Super excited. How was Mother's Day? Let's just get it out out, out of the way quick. Sure. Well, Mother's Day was uh, Mother's Day was lovely. You know, as you know, my first one without my mom. But um, we were invited over to some friends' houses and went over there and and uh, spent a lovely afternoon. And and you know, it was it was really nice. How was yours? Uh, we didn't do much here. Uh, there's been a lot of a lot of drama around. Uh, kids and whatnot so you know we just we, we we'll, just we'll talk later on yeah that. we just kind of stepped out of mother's day but you know i got to thinking was there any historical relation between mother's day and world war ii because a lot of times you know the things that we participate we celebrate in our daily lives things that are invented uh tv shows christmas we talk about it all the time most of your christmas carols you hear people singing those all gained popularity in world war ii were actually written during world war ii to help boost morale Mm-hmm. So I got the thing. Well, what's the historical relevance with Mother's Day? When did it come to be? And uh, is there any relation to World War II? So I did a quick look around. It turns out Mother's Day is a holiday celebrated in various countries around the world to honor and appreciate mothers and motherhood. The exact origins of Mother's Day can be traced back to ancient civilizations, where festivals and celebrations were held to honor mother goddesses. However, the modern concept of Mother's Day had its roots in the 20th century. In the United States, the official establishment of Mother's Day is, cre- uh, is credited to Anna Jarvis. Anna Jarvis, an American social activist, campaigned for the creation of the day to honor mothers after her mother died in 1905. It's a little narcissistic, but okay. <laughs> we'll keep going. Uh, she wanted to celebrate a day to recognition of and appreciation for the sacrifices of mothers made for their children. Which, you know, we don't think about it much nowadays because we have medical science, but death and child during childbirth was very prominent back even into the early 1900s. Oh, very. I mean, that, that was one thing. When, okay, so a little anecdote kind of along that line. When I was uh, in college... I worked for the city of Montevallo during the summers, okay, Uh, when I was home from Auburn University during the summers, and we would cut grass, among other things, but I remember one day we had to cut grass out at the Montevallo Cemetery, and I remember coming home that night, and you know, when you're out there pushing a lawnmower and it's 95 degrees, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to amuse yourself any way you can, and I remember I would see, you know, I'd always read the headstones. And I mean, of course, the ones who were obviously veterans. Now we're talking, Don, I mean, we're talking 1985 here. So, I mean, God, think about how many World War II veterans are still with us. But yeah. I mean, I would, I, I just kind of noticed everybody's headstone that, that I went past with a lawnmower. But I, I remember that night going home and, and commenting to my mom how many I saw of just like 
super young children. And they were all 19, 1900 to 1901, you know, 1921 to 1922. And that just made such an impression on me. And, and I made that comment to my mom and she said, early child death in the early 1900s, she said, I, it was so common. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, you know, it, it's going to sound, and it is, it's going to sound, and it is taboo by today's standards, but let's not forget that, you know, during the World War II, when Social Security administration came to play, Social Security kicked in at 65 because, you know, the average life expectancy was like 70, 80-ish. Right. And prior to that, back in the 1900s, life expectancy was 40, 50, 60. Yeah. So that meant middle age was about 20, 17. And so it was not uncommon for women to get married off at 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age. Mm -hmm. And so then when you're looking at these headstones, like you're saying, and you're doing the math, like there's a lot of women dying at 15, 16. They're dying during childbirth because we right. didn't have the technology. So not only, and as you were saying, you know, it's, it's so common to hear, you know, farmers, all we had, Oh, you know, I was born in 1907, you know, I was the fifth child in my three, you know, my older brother died of polio. The other one had, you know, scoliosis, you know, and it was not mm -hmm. uncommon to lose three or four siblings to just quote when, unquote natural causes. When we, so several years ago, and this was back when my wife's dad was still with us. Uh, I want to say this was Thanksgiving of 2017. We went over to South Carolina to the, the tobacco country where her dad came from originally. Great little bucolic rural farm town. And I remember we, we walked from her her aunt's house, her aunt Sybil's house, right down this country road to, to the church where their family had gone for generations. And we're Jack was with us, you know, it's Andrea and me. And Jack was probably, well, he would have been eight, I guess, at that time. Uh, no, 20, he would have been nine, actually. But we walked into this churchyard, Don, and, and to, to your earlier point, I mean, I started noticing the cemetery in the churchyard. And, I mean, this just broke my heart. There was one family there, five headstones of infant babies. And I say that not to be you know, not to be macabre or cast a, a, a gloom by any means. We're going to have a great show. Tonight, this is a history but, podcast. This is, I mean, this yeah. is history. This is, if anything, this should go to show about, you know, as crazy as it sounds, we're talking about how hard things were back then, but people complained a whole hell of a lot less because they had more things to do. They, they did. Well, I mean, they're out tilling the fields, so they had food to put on the table, but, but that, that family, and this, this was, you know, early between 1910 and 19, 1900, 1920, mm -hmm. I'll just say that, five infant babies. And I just, you know, I, I mean, we're, I couldn't even imagine that. But, but yeah, man, that was a part of our history. And it, it also speaks to the resilience of the people who survived. Yeah. And if you guys haven't seen 1883, the precursor to Yellowstone, it's about Is the Oregon good? Trail. I think it's better than Yellowstone. Um, so far, really? I think it's better than 1923, which is the follow-up. It's basically about um, a group of Germans who pays a couple of cowboys to take them down the Oregon Trail and how few lived, how few of them survived. But let's Speaking. go back. To, hold on. Let's get back to Anna Jarvis real quick. Finish this up. Sure. Anna Jarvis's effort led to the first official Mother's Day celebration in the United States in 1908. 
The celebration gained widespread popularity and support, prompting the United States Congress to de- designate Mother's Day as a national holiday in 1914. Other countries also adopted the concept of Mother's Day, although the dates and customs associated with each holiday may vary. Now back to the brass tacks. Re- regarding the relationship between Mother's Day and World War II, the holiday itself predates the war, as we just talked about. However, Mother's Day gained additional significance during World War II due to the profound impact the war had on families and the roles of the mothers. During the war, many mothers faced the challenges of having their sons and husbands serving in the military, while others took on new responsibilities in the workforce to support the war effort. Mother's Day became a time-honored and acknowledged I'm sorry, Mother's Day became a time to honor and acknowledge the strength and resilience of mothers who were facing the hardships of war. In the United States, Mother's Day was used to Mother's Day was used as a tool for bo- bo- boosting morale and pro and promoting patriotism during World War II. The government and various organizations encouraged citizens to honor mothers and send them letters, cards, and care packages to show the appreciation for their sacrifices. Mother's Day also became a time to remember and honor the mothers who lost their sons during the war. And so, yes, it was around prior to that, but much like a lot of other things that existed prior to that era of the war, it uh, got more significant because of the impact it had on the brothers, the sons, and the husbands during the war. But as you were saying... Um, what, What was I about to say? I don't know. We were talking about... Oh, Resilience. yes. So 1923, 1883. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. So my wife and I really got into Yellowstone. We're anxiously awaiting things to pick back up after that, what, season six, mid-season finale? No, season four. What? Season five's coming up. It's the last season because um, okay. Homeboy's getting a little long in the tooth. Costner bailing out. Yeah, I kind of understand it because, I mean, look, I've been... I would not to blow my own horn, but I've been down since the cause since episode one, since it premiered. You mm-hmm. know, it's funny. I watched Hell on Wheels, which I think was a great show. And Carrie Smith, are you watching your choo choo train show? Should I bust my balls for watching Hell on Wheels? But it was a great show. Yeah. <clears throat> and then when Yellowstone came out, oh, you went from your choo choo train show to your cowboy show. Well, three seasons in, it's everybody on the internet started talking about it. So then I had to go back and watch all three seasons while she got caught up. But it's, it's a great show. But, after season four, say, okay, the plot's the same every year. So, well, so let me say this real quick. Maybe it's time for it to move on. But yeah, go ahead. No, what I want to say, our boy James Dale, who played Lecky in the Pacific. Yeah. You know, he is it 1923 that he's in? Um, I'm only three episodes in on that one. I will say I enjoyed 1883 better. I 1883, you I did. You still have me. I think you froze up on. I still on have your audio. Just keep going. Um, your audio is fine. Can you hear me? Okay, so it looks like Henry's having some technical difficulties. I'm still here. It could be my internet can drop. You, yeah, you I still can hear me. I can hear you fine. And so, um, the joys of the internet. So I'm still alive. So anyhow, 1883 worked quite. I, I, to me, I just you know I kept going. I did not want to stop it. I did not want to. It to me, it was like binge worthy. I just kept it going every single episode, and. With 1923, I just kind of fell out of it, you know, a lot quicker. So I'm going to kick Henry out here and see if we can get him back. Welcome to the joys of a live podcasting. So I'm going to kick Henry out of here and see if... Oh, what's this? So, yeah. So I'm going to 
try to get him back in here. So just one moment. Uh, I don't know how to do this without you all seeing everything. But yeah, um, 1883, I binge watched the whole thing. I thought it was great. I didn't want to um, miss a single episode. 1923, I got like an episode in. I'm like, eh, this is cool and all. But it just did not stick with me like 1883 did. So if you guys haven't seen either one of them, I would strongly suggest you watch 1883. And then 1923, you can choose and decide what you want to do with that one. And um, speaking of historical stuff, I'm kind of watching Waco the Aftermath. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to maintain a show here while, you know, we don't have a producer. Um, yeah, I just sent them an, uh, another invite. Do, 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 do. Tell you what we're going to do while I try to get him back to maintain a little continuity. Um, so as you guys know, a while back we handed out the first Patreon prize pick where we gave out the first bag of the Warbird coffee, the first autograph M block, as well as the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast coffee mug. And um, that winner was, and still is, Alexander Richard Marshall. So, Alexander, if you're listening, please go to Patreon, check your email, reply so we know what your address is. But I got the thing to say, you know, I want to give away another M block. Because um, why not? We got a handful of them here. We've been kind of threatening to give them to you guys. You saw the video clip when we opened up the show. And so, what I'm going to do right now while I'm trying to get Henry back on the air, even though I have no producer, this is the canteen we used to draw the first coffee winner. And I still have. I still have all of the winners still in there. And tell you what, we're I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to get Henry back on here, and we will pick up where we left off. So for those of you watching, uh, do forgive us. But, you know, this is the joys of live internet and live podcasting. I did have a problem with my power went out earlier. So hold tight, and we will be right back. And we are back, and ladies and gentlemen, that's part of the reason why most people don't do this crap live, but, you know, we like a challenge, and so we are alive, and when you're live, live things happen, like internet disconnects and all that stuff. But as we were saying, I was answering your question, Henry, about 1883 versus 1923 versus Yellowstone, and in my opinion, just, just my humble opinion, when it came to viewing, I did not want to stop watching 1883. I just watched it all the time, binge-watched binge every episode, rolled right through one after the other. 1923, I got to like episode two, and I have to turn it back on, and it's been a week. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just a different flavor. Um, maybe it's kind of what we were just talking about with Yellowstone. I think maybe because the 1923, they start to get into the whole aspect of what we dealt with on 1923, on the modern-day Yellowstone. So I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> get back in the old plot line again is an engaging show it was on several months ago like a, a marathon weekend i came through the room my wife was watching it and i was like what are you watching and, and she said it's pretty rough i don't know if i really want to stick with it well i sat down we both got into it ended up watching like every episode of every season you know we and then it, it was Beth. it was around the time that season five like not long after that they had the season five mid finale mid-season finale yeah so we're all you know it was or Beth and Jamie going to end up killing each other. We're all just <laughs> waiting to see what happens, you know, and now we're hearing Coster may flake out of it. I mean, who knows, but fun fact, uh, um, I little, little, I like to always play. Where did I see them before? So Beth, we all know where Beth came from. Beth, you probably 
she played the um, psychologist in the The Departed. Remember Leonardo DiCaprio and um, oh, the the cop movie from the mid two thousands where he was. It had Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, um, it was based off the, the Chinese movie, but yeah, it's about the bad, the, the dirty cop. He's going uh, through police academy. Anyhow, it's called The Departed. She played his, uh, okay. Leonardo DiCaprio's psychologist, Jamie. You ever wondering? Jamie looks familiar. Oh, uh, yes, I know this. He played the weird boy in American yes. Beauty, the one who liked to videotape the bag floating in the wind, whose dad was yes. a Nazi paraphernalia collector. And he, it, it doesn't surprise me that he's turned into a guy whose sister hates him and wants to kill him. <laughs> Do you know where the other son, what he was on? Uh, which one now? The the bull, the one married to the Native American chick. The, 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 oh, yeah. The Luke. beloved son. Oh, Casey? Is the yeah. same Casey? Yeah, Casey. Um, oh, man, he's a country singer. Mm, no, the other guy's a country singer. Casey's not. He yeah, may not. be. Luke. He may be, but... Well, anyway, I don't the f- know. I, I mean, I, I'm sure he's been in a lot of movies without doing the, the, you know, the Wikipedia or Googling it. But I went yeah. and I watched the remake. I was bored the other day, and as you know, I cut the cord, and I, I have streaming services, and so I watched the remake of the, oh, uh, what was it, the Magnificent Seven, the Western movie. Yeah. Was he in that? The 2001 remake, or 2004, the one that came out a few years ago that had Denzel uh, Washington in it and um, couple uh, the cat who played uh, Private's Pile on uh, Full Metal Jacket played the, the, the Trapper. Okay. The guy who plays the good son on that, he played the friend of the wife who went out and tracked down and actually hired the Magnificent Seven. He actually played that role. So he was actually in that as a cowboy. So watching him in that, like, oh, yeah, I, I, did can, not s- know I can see. I didn't either until I started watching it. See the transition. Fun fact about 1883, I was watching the first episode. No spoiler alerts here. You know by mm-hmm. the date. But there's two uncredited, at least in the opening credits. I didn't watch the ending credits. I, I, I'm like... Recognize the voice in the eyes because there's a lot of beards and sideburns in 1883. I'm watching like the first one. There's a scene where they flash back to Gettysburg, mm-hmm. end of a battle scene, and one of the characters is sitting there as he looks over the field and sees all his men die, and the Yankees right up behind him, and the guy gets off his horse and puts his hand on his shoulder, and so the other general kind of gives him his condolences for seeing his entire unit wiped out. He sits mm-hmm. down next to him, full black beard, just big fuzzy beard. I'm looking at the eyes and the voice. I'm like, that's Tom Hanks. Got off the phone. Just typed in Tom Hanks, 188. Oh, got that one right. <laughs> and then later on in the scene, there's another guy. I'm like, that's Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> so there's like all kinds of people hidden in 1883. It's pretty cool. But did, did you hear me say that the guy who played Lecky, James Wedge Dale, is in it? You or he, he, he said he was in the 1923 one. I think. He's 19. Okay, 1923. I'm not and sure. By the way, by the way, Luke Grimes. Okay, that he's that's the dude you were just talking about. I think he's a country singer. I thought the country. Uh, I I'd have to Google it and look. He, he could very well be a country singer. I I don't. He's not real. He's yeah, not yeah, super yeah. well known. He's got like less than a million. It's funny though. On Spotify, but well, he can't be that good of a singer if the if all the Yellowstone music's playing. Um, <laughs> well, they they actually don't have any of his music. That's what I was going to say. Music. They play more. Um, Oh, oh uh, Ryan Bingham. N- well, no, I can't play. I just went. I I listen to this guy every day. I just 
I just. And Ryan Bingham's gotten huge on it. They play, hey, man, they play uh, uh, Blackberry Smoke a lot. Zach Bryan. Zach Bryan's yep. pl- all over that show. And I, I started listening to him about mm-hmm. nine months ago. I'm not a big country mm-hmm. person. I, I like Willie. I like, you know, old stuff. But in my estimation, Zach Bryan's like the best thing to come out in the last 15 years. His live album he just did called All My Homies Hate Ticketmaster. It's a beautiful album. But he's the one who was playing at the fair on Yellowstone. And also Shane Smith and the Saints has gotten a lot of exposure as has Whiskey Myers. Yeah. There are a lot of bands that are making bank off that, man. Absolutely. That's Well, that's like the, it's almost like the country music equivalent to release date. Like if you were an upcoming country star. You know, you want your music played on Yellowstone, but what's going to happen now that the the show's going away? I, so, are they going to finish up season five? Season five is going to be done, and then I think it's going to be over. Wow. But they're probably going to have another one. Probably Casey's kids going to take over or something. There's going to be, I'm sure, there's going to be a follow up. Well, you know, there's going to be. Remember when? So the, Jefferson White is the actor, but he plays Jimmy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, he, they're going to do the triple sixes or whatever that is. The four sixes, yeah. yeah four they're sixes. supposed to do something on the four sixes. Tyler Sheridan, that's the name. Tyler Sheridan. Taylor, Taylor, Taylor Sheridan. Sheridan. Fun fact: If you if, did you ever watch Walking Dead? Uh, no, not Walking Dead. Did you ever watch Sons of Anarchy? I did not. He played the town deputy on Sons of Anarchy. That's kind of how he got his foot into the scene. But he's one to write Yellowstone. I just got yes, done I watching. I just got done watching The King of Tulsa. Tulsa okay. King, Sylvester Sloan. He wrote that. That's a fantastic. Taylor totally Sheridan wrote that. Yes, he wrote that. That's Jeez. a fantastic show. And, I, and he also did, I think, Mayor, something Mayor, which um, has the guy who just lost his foot in the, uh, well, almost lost his foot in the snowmobile accident. But anyhow, back to World War II based stuff. Yeah, I mean, our listeners are going to get upset if we don't jump nah. on World War II stuff. So. Yeah, I listen to, I listen I to, hope home, not. I, I mean, listen to Home Improvement podcast and it barely talks about home improvement. So. No, listen, I think it's great. I love it when we're just riffing and, you know, talking punk rock or Yellowstone or whatever. I love it. So, Did you know the Navy spent a million dollars on an ice cream barge? I did not know that. When was this? For sailors during World War One, ice cream was a delectable dessert that took the place of alcohol aboard the ship during Prohibition. In 1914, General Order Number 99 banned liquor aboard naval vessels as it was as it was shortly followed by the 18th Amendment, making alcohol illegal across the entire United States. As a result, ice cream became the de facto staple for boosting morale. Even though Prohibition only lasted six years, sailors' love for ice cream extended well after that. In 1942, the aircraft carrier USS Lexington sustained damage from a Japanese torpedo and began to sink. As sailors abandoned the ship, they grabbed containers of ice cream from the freezers and began chowing down. Quote, survivors described scooping ice cream into their helmets and licking them clean before they jumped into the Pacific, wrote one author. The fierce dedication to the frosted sugary dairy led to the Navy spending $1 million on an ice cream barge. The barge, which borrowed, acquisitioned, if you will, (laughs) uh, the concrete barge from the Army, retrofitted as an at-sea ice cream facility and parlor. I'm sorry, ice cream factory and parlor. The ship, which was stationed in the Western Pacific, carted ice cream around to ships that were smaller than a destroyer and that did not have their own ice cream making facility on board. Apparently, large ships all over the Navy fleet had ice cream shops already built in. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, let's see. The floating factory was able to make 10 gallons of ice cream in just seven minutes, meaning that one shift on the barge could produce approximately 500 gallons of frozen dessert for sailors. To accommodate the large amount of ice cream made, the barge could hold 2,000 gallons at a time. Gracious. The barge was not the most practical ship in the Navy. The concrete boat had no engine and had to be towed around by tugboats. Regardless of any difficulty this provided, it was the sailors' favorite because it brought to them pretty good reward for service. Unfortunately, the unnamed ship no longer delivers ice cream to deployed sailors. The fate of the ice cream barge is unknown, but some think it may rest in the bay with other bygone ships of the era. Now, before the show, you and I were talking about naval guns, and the reason this came up is I'm looking at the photo, and there's three, there's four Marines sitting around with their canteen cups much like the one featured in the new what's the scuttlebutt t-shirt <laughs> more nice. about that later um and they're they're hanging around one of those big ass guns uh we were talking about it before the show and i oh the orlican the orlican yeah and the reason it brings up is so the orlican had the big thick steel shields around them kind of mm. to provide some protection and in this picture it says lead the jet <laughs> talking about how he had to lead the target on the orlican and so uh, that's that's a pretty cool little photo. They you have a bunch of Marines sitting around in their uh, herringbone twill trousers with white shirts, and they all got their um, oat, their khaki piss cutters on with their uh, EGAs mm -hmm. on them, just sitting there chowing down on some ice cream. I, nice. I mean, I knew everybody loved ice cream, but I didn't know that even without the barge, that large naval ships just pumped out ice cream all day long. I, yeah, I knew the aircraft carriers did because I mean, like they they're. Their ready rooms for the aviators were <clears throat> were air conditioned. Now, as far as like the other ships, I didn't know. I guess they did too. I mean, they would have had the capacity for it. Well, we were discussing the Arlington and why we're here. Let's give a little history for those who don't know. Um, it's a weird name, especially for a United States um, firearm or artillery piece. One of the most widely used naval weapons during World War II was a 20-millimeter Orlikan anti-aircraft cannon, and it was installed aboard a variety of every U.S. naval warships, from lonely PT boats to massive battleships, as well as its auxiliaries and armed merchantmen. It could mm -hmm. be bolted down almost anywhere at a high rate of fire and could come into action very quickly. More than 88,000 20-millimeter Orlikans in both single and twin mounting variants were manufactured in the United States between 1941 and 1945. Another 30,000 were manufactured by the British for use in the Royal Commonwealth. I'm not going to give the whole history, but let's just say the Orlikan was used in World War I by the Germans. It was a Swiss company. But um, seeing how things were going and not exactly aligning with the... Um, the thought patterns, if you will, of the um, the Germans during World War II. Right around forty, um, right around the early forties, one of the Swiss engineers who worked for the Orlinkin Company made their way to the United States, and um, he was able to acquire the controlling interest, and um, he basically brought the weapon to the United States and started manufacturing the guns over here. And so that's how we have the same weapon systems that sometimes you would see on German ships as well. So the Orlington, 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 it's such a hard, hard to say freaking phrase because of the, the background of it. That was a, that was a mean piece of fire, firepower. Well, you know, licensing certain type types of firearms mechanisms or actions was not, 
totally unheard of. I mean, like the the Japanese had the Lewis gun, you know, with mm-hmm. the, and the like they used that in the back seats of their observation planes. Uh, you know, it had the drum magazine, and in fact, it was a Lewis gun that when my dad peeked his head over the the wall of the bunker, it was the Japanese gunner had a Lewis gun. Yeah. Absolutely. But, but the point being that, yes, that type of action was licensed. I, I did some research on this and wrote it into my manuscript when I got to the part about the bunker, but that's been some months back. So I can't remember exactly what I unearthed. So last week's episode, we had a guest on, Mr. Brotherton, uh, promoting his new book, The Long March Home. And that prompted a super fan, Rona, to email us. And we want to hear from you guys as well. So if you want to email us, send us an email to mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. That is WTSPWWII.com. Jeff usually reads our mail call, but he's out tonight, and I didn't have time to email us to Henry. You guys have been listening to me read for the last hour and a half, so you can suffer through me reading this email as well. But she sent an attachment, which we're going to put on our website because this is very cool. She writes, excellent episode last week with Marcus Brotherton on the Bataan Death March. Recently, a co-worker shared with me a short memoir her grandfather's brother, PFC James H. Cohen, USSAAF, he felt compelled to write his experiences down in 1972 after suffering nightmares and flashbacks as a result of watching the nightly news reports from Vietnam. Uh, Cohen survived the Bataan Death March and imprisonment at O'Donnell and the Cabotown and POW camps. He was subsequently liberated by the Army Rangers in the Great Raid of the Cabotown. I sl- see, I slaughter all these words. The ca- ca- Cabin of Tuan. The Cabin of Tuan. Thank you. The Cabin of Tuan. See, I need to run all these by me before we get left. <laughs> Raid at the Cabin of Tuan in January 1945. Attached, please find a copy of the original hand-typed memoir shared with his permission. My understanding that it has never been published, though his story has been mentioned in published works online. I know you'll agree. It's an honor to read each and every one of these memoirs. And so I'm going to post this PDF so you guys can download this and read it. It's literally a scanned version of a typed manuscript or short story. And so that'll be available with this episode at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And maybe that's something we'll start. Maybe we'll start a, a, a new tab, if you will, a new button, a new page, a new link on our website where if you guys, you listening audience, you have, whether they're handwritten, typed out, you know, even if they're audio tapes, if you have the ability to convert it to MP3, maybe we'll start a little library page on our website where people can go and submit these artifacts or read these artifacts and share them amongst the audience, and we can kind of mm-hmm. form our own little community here. Think about how many, how many guys did that same thing. I mean, they took notes. They maybe when they got home, or you know, they 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 wrote down their own little unpublished memoir, if you will, of their experiences. I mean, there are, there's gotta be a wealth of that kind of material out there. But sadly, how many of them kept it to themselves? They did it as a form of therapy and then kept it to themselves. And then when they passed, yeah, it inadvertently got thrown out with a stack of bills and old tax forms from 1973 that the kids didn't know it was there. So it got lost yeah. to history. Very true. And very sad. And so, Thank you so much, Rona. And by the, as we said before, if you guys want to email us, send us an email to mail call WTSPRollWar2.com. Henry, when you fell off earlier, I decided I wanted to do something nice. Um, we did the, we did the giveaway. 
By the way, you weren't here. Uh, we I announced it, but the winner for the first pick of this month, which we're going to do another pick at the end of the month to give away the second bag of coffee, was Mr. Alexander Richard Marshalls. He got to choose the bag of coffee he wanted. He got mm-hmm. an autographed end block. He got a coffee mug and some stickers, which, by the way, that's a pretty pretty nice prize pack for doing nothing but sign up for Patreon, right? Hey, I thought I was here when you announced it. You tell me when I fell off. No, when you fell off, I said this. As I was okay. trying to stretch to give you time to come back, and before the show, I decided I still have the names from the other Patreon members in this canteen. I was going to draw a winner and mail them out an in block. You, are you good with? Let's give away an in block. You want to give away an autographed in yeah, block? Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to give away our another. listeners. We appreciate them. Now, by the way, it was bad. Oh, that one actually came out. <laughs> it was a bad decision for me to crumble up paper and put in my canteen because they do not fall out as easily <laughs> as one might suspect. But we did have one drop out here. So we're going to give away. This will be the actual second autographed M block. I don't know if you guys can see, but there's Jeff Cop said is very nice, pretty handwriting. And then there's mine and Henry's just chicken scratch garbage, which you won't be able to decipher between them. You can read Jeff. Jeff writes like a woman, but Henry and I, we're dudes. We scribble like dudes. <laughs> and so uh, when you get the end block, you'll see Jeff's nice, pretty handwriting. He's kind of like the John Hancock. And then Henry and I just look like somebody gave a pen to a chick and hopped up on coffee. <laughs> he scribbled his name on there. So today's winner, he has been a member of Patreon since September 28th, 2021. Mr. Brian Larkin, congratulations, Brian. You just won the second autographed M block. And so I will be reaching out to you on Patreon as well, sir. So congratulations for winning a autographed M block by Jeff, Henry, and myself. And if you guys are wondering how you could possibly win an M block or maybe the next prize giveaway, we are giving away the other prize pack at the end of this month for the coffee, the coffee mug, and another M block stickers, etc. All you have to do is head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com and sign up for Patreon. Or if you're already a Patreon member and you haven't signed up for us, just search for Digital 410 and Patreon. Sign up. It's a dollar a month. There's two other plans, but all you have to do to get registered to possibly become a winner is sign up for the dollar a month plan, and that'll get you registered. And we simply just put your name in here, shake it up, draw it at random. Whoever wins, win. You don't have to be a long-time member. Just got to sign up. So please head over. That goes a long way to support what we do here on the channel, on the on the network here over Digital 410 and all that good stuff. Now, Henry, you're pointing out to, before the show, you live in the humid, hot areas of Alabama. And not too far down the elbow of that arm, I live in hot-ass Florida. And it's getting hot. Yes. And now that you find yourself working outside more, you get to appreciate the hotness out there. And as we tend to do as World War II aficionados, we often take the things we like to complain about and then realize we have no problems when it could be a lot worse. We could be in that same heat, but being in a different environment. And so you kind of want to discuss that a little bit. Yeah. Let's kick that around. I mean, that's, that's a way we've explored that theme before. You know, when you think you're cold or you think you're hungry or you think you're having a bad day or, or as, as you just said, Don, as we just peel the, the label back and just peel the curtain back and start to get into the hotter days. I mean, we put, we view things through that lens of the World War II experience. And obviously 
not that we want to, we will never experience the horrors of that entire campaign or war. But there used to be a saying, you want to know how someone feel? Walk a mile in their shoes. Well, to take what you're saying and then to pick someone up from modern day society and drop them in a similar situation, not being shot at, but wearing old ass shoes, heavy ass gear, drinking from metal cans. When I got in this hobby, I did a lot of living history events. You might go out and do some bang, bang, little weapons demos, maybe run around a field for 10 minutes. It wasn't until I did my first tactical event and more importantly, training with World War II armor where I'm out in the hot Florida sun walking four or five miles that I realized, A, these don't hold much water, mm-hmm. and B, holy hell, I am out of shape. I remember the two things I kept saying when I was my first time training. We need water out here. <laughs> I felt like I was on the Pelu episode. Of, we need water. Like, my canteen was empty. Yeah. I'm just dying of sweat. I'm wearing wool shirt. I'm 30 pounds overweight. I'm dying. You know, I got my ego, so I'm trying to keep up. And I, and that's part of the reason I started working out. It's like, I if I'm going to do this sort of thing where I'm out doing these, you know, like when we go up to Alabama or Georgia, and the Alabama and Georgia, we do mm-hmm. these tacticals. We're out in the woods for like four or five hours just huffing and carrying all this crap. And mm-hmm. But back to what you're saying, to go from being in an office environment, living the cushy lives we do, just to something as minor, <clears throat> nowhere comparable, but wearing shoes that were reproduction of the technology from 80 years ago wearing wool shirts carrying heavy guns heavy helmets on your head backpacks and then running through ankle deep sand <laughs> trying to cut keep up with m1 tanks mm-hmm. you're like i and, need water and that's a great if i could use that yep. to segue into some stuff i was thinking about and sure. with the old breed you Please. talk about water i mean in space the Science has taught us you absolutely have to be sufficiently hydrated. So I'm going to jump in here. It's D plus one on Peleliu. So I'm going to read just a little bit here because he talks about the whole water situation. This is just reading from what Sledgehammer wrote here. D plus one on Peleliu early in the morning. Dawn finally came, and with it, the temperature rose rapidly. Where the hell is our water? Growled men around me. We had suffered many cases of heat prostration the day before and needed water, or we'd all pass out during the attack, I thought. Stand by to move out, came the order. We squared away all of our personal gear. Snafu secured the gun, took it down by folding the bipod and strapping it while I packed my remaining shells in my ammo bag. I've got to get some water. I'm going to crack up, I said. At that moment, a buddy nearby yelled and beckoned to us. Come on, we found a well. I snatched up my carbine and took off, empty canteens bouncing on my cartridge belt. About 25 yards away, a group of company came in, gathered at a hole, about 15 feet in diameter and 10 feet deep. I peered over the edge. At the bottom and to one side was a small pool of milky-looking water. Japanese shells were beginning to fall in the airfield, but I was too thirsty to care. One of the men was already in the hole filling canteens and passing them up. The buddy who had called me was drinking from a helmet with its liner removed. He gulped down the milky stuff and said, It isn't beer, but it's wet. Helmets and canteens were passed up to those of us waiting. Don't bunch up, you guys. We'll draw a Jap fire sure as hell, shouted one man. The first man who drank the water looked at me and said, suddenly said, I feel sick. This is going to be the last um, paragraph that, that, of this part. A company corpsman came up yelling, don't drink that water, you guys. It may be poisoned. I had just lifted a full canteen to my, or a full helmet to my lips when the man next to me fell, holding his sides and retching violently. I threw down my water, milky with coral dust, and started assisting the corpsman with the man who was ill. 
He went to the rear where he recovered. Whether it was poisoned or pollution, we never knew. <clears throat> and so you're, you've got something you're about to say before you say that. We all know what happened when the water did get to him. Yeah. There was no better, but go ahead. Well, as licenses and liberties happen in TV shows, they had to kind of brief that up by putting the ox head in the water showing that it was, in fact, poisoned. Mm-hmm. But what Henry was alluding to and flashback to when, you know, it's so crazy that I have you in my life. I, like, I'm going to say back when Henry showed up on, on a Pavuvu, back when Eugene showed up on Pavuvu and Snafu just meeting him, took him out to do the oil can duty where he cleans mm-hmm. oil cans for no man, um, you know, they kind of shirked their duty. They, they didn't put in their full effort. They kind of half-assed it. And yeah. then fast forward to Peleliu, the sun's beating <clears throat> down, the canteens are empty, the ice cream's already out of the system. <laughs> um, when water does start coming in, it comes in these oil cans, these 55-gallon drums, and they crack it open. And Kind of like if you've ever been on an old boat with an old outboard motor and you stick it in the water, you just see that, that rainbow just kind of start floating around that outboard motor. That's what their water looked like. And then to top it off, you had chunks of rust and metal flakes in there. Because, and like your father said, there's no way of knowing, but was that one of the barrels that he didn't put his best effort into? And so it, when they Absolutely. did get water, it was like, okay, we have water, but it's polluted and it has metal in it, so you're going to get cramps from drinking it. And could you imagine, I mean... We've all been to a level of frustrated, whether or not we're having a bad day at work. Maybe you're trying to build something in the backyard and you crack your hammer. Something just happens where you just scream to the heavens and it takes everything in your willpower not to cry. Even mm-hmm. as a grown-ass man. Could you imagine being in that situation where you're getting shot at, you're watching your guys blow up, only thing you can concentrate, your, your lips are cracked. And it was either Sid Phillips or your father who used the lovely adjective or description of it felt like a gremlin was marching around on my tongue and a pair of muddy oh, boots. That was from with the old breed, actually. Yeah. And so I, if I hadn't, yeah, yeah your mouth exactly. is just dry. Your lips are cracked and you're smoking. Now, if you all uh. never smoked before, you don't realize how much it dries one's mouth out. But as somebody who used to be a two pack day smoker, in my twenties, I completely understand. Um, and just, your dream, your your dreams, your prayers, your cries have just come true. Hey, we found a well. Gather mm-hmm. up. And then guys are just falling over and like obviously unlike the movie, there was no goat head in it, but it's safe to say it could have been used as a latrine. Maybe the Japs knew we were coming and or they mm-hmm. had a they had a water source closer to where they were held up. So hey, let's go ahead and do whether got unspoken things to that one, you just never know. No, it's it's pretty likely the Japanese did <clears throat> poison any water source that they thought the Marines would go for. But I've I've wondered. I'm I'm betting they filmed something about the oily water and it just got cut. Yeah, because there was nothing about the oily drums and the steam cleaning. And I'm pretty sure Bruce. Knowing him and how he adhered to with the old breed and, and source material, I bet they filmed something on that and it just got ended up on the cutting room floor. Because the scene, other than the show, how much of a hardened dick snafu could be, the er, earlier oil can, can scene really added nothing to the 
to the story without the secondary scene happening that we believe mm-hmm. was probably recorded and for time's sake or maybe just it didn't pan out the way they want they cut it because it would make sense that if you're going to film the first scene you're going to follow it up with the right. arrival of the oil cans right of course and maybe it just just maybe it slowed the progress down maybe it just didn't fit in right who knows could be a hundred different things but yeah it's the the heat is such a, a and once again they're on blasted coral surrounded by water you're talking to a guy who goes out fishing in the summer on a kayak four days a week in Florida. Mm-hmm. Now, if you guys are subscribed to the YouTube channel, I'm sure you've been inundated. Or if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you're annoyed with all my fishing photos. But you're probably wondering, why does this fool have a long sleeve shirt, hood, hat, and pants? Nah, I, why on a kayak pro- I in know why degree weather? Two things. If Lawrence of Arabia taught us anything, it's that your skin is cooler when it's not in direct sunlight. And it took me almost two years to get Carrie to follow that. Mm-hmm. And two, you younger cats aren't going to get this reference, but you older cats are going to get it. When I first started kayak fishing, I did not wear any protection. Didn't wear the long sleeve. I had my hat on. And when I shave now, I have skin damage. I actually have brown mm-hmm. spots on my face. And I said, I do not want to look like Captain Ron in three years. And if, yeah. you, if you remember the movie Captain Ron from the 90s, you'll know. I, so I go out there and I, I put sunscreen on. I even wear gloves in the middle of summer because I would, I would come to work and my hands would be all red. So I wear the fingerless gloves. I wear the – and those shirts I wear actually allow in 40% of the UV. That's why I don't have farmer's mm-hmm. tan. It actually allows sunlight in. So it's kind of like having 60 – uh, you know, percent sunblock on, mm-hmm. and I wear the hats, the hoods, sunglasses, and I try to minimize my skin exposure. Once again, if you're going out fishing once a month on a boat, twice a month, maybe you got on weekends, <clears throat> do you? I would still say block yourself. But when you're going out like every day after work, like I, because I have boat ramps within a mile from my house, and so I can right. go out between. I just you got to block yourself, and it gets hot out there with my. Wick away, high-end, high-technology shirts. I'm not out there. Well, I am sometimes in the summer times, not every day, but when I do my living history events, I've been out there in the HBTs in the hot Alabama sun. That's nothing like the hot, you know, South mm-hmm. Pacific sun. But to be out there in HBTs, the helmet, the leggings, I actually usually take the leggings off, but one of the cool things about doing the landing craft at the 75th anniversary of Peleliu, as much as it sucked, was getting the wet sand all over you. Because, I mean, once again, you want to experience what someone experienced, you got to walk a mile in their shoes. Well, walking their miles in some cheaply reproduced boondockers from What Price Glory, which gives you blisters only on one foot for some reason, is bad enough. But once you, once you add sand to the mix... And you're Ugh. and you're actually wearing. I'm so hardcore. I wear reproduction off skivvies. I don't. Even, I'm not out there in modern day underwear. I even, I even got the skivvies on that. I'm sure if your father ever talked to you in this level of personal stuff, you guys don't understand how bad chafing is. But you know what he told me. Finish what you're saying. 
I have, after wearing reproduction skivvies that are exactly like what your father wore, when I show up in Alabama on a Thursday, sleep in them, I only have two pairs, so I change once. By the time I get home on Monday, the rash in between my legs and my man bits are so bad that I can barely walk. I cannot imagine how bad it had to be for them living in that environment for months on end to the point where they probably just got rid of them and then they got rash from the HBTs. I mean, you get diaper rash so bad because they're not wick away. It's not modern-day cotton. It's like having a, a wet, damp, trying to be clean about this, but mm-hmm. bandana right down between your legs. And so that moisture just builds up, and it's you get you literally get diaper rash down there. It's horrible. But once again, you're trying to experience the horrors of what they went through. My dad told me that, now I don't know about in training on Pavuvu or, or Friar, but he said on Peleliu they did not wear underwear. Yeah. Most, of them, most of the guys he knew just didn't have skivvies. Yeah, because they just, they're tight. They rode up. Well, and think about the other thing, Don. Think about it, man. After a few days and all the flies came in on the dead bodies, think about it, man. Mm-hmm. Everybody's getting dysentery. And by the way, elastic didn't exist back then. How these work is they got three buttons up the front. You pull them up past your belly button. There's two tie strings on the right on each side of the hip to tighten them down. And there's no there's no modern day equivalent of the fly. So your equipment's falling through the hole. And so yeah, I can definitely see just getting rid of the damn things and you'd probably minimize the diaper rash than actually dealing with them. They were by no means, um, hygienic in any way, shape or point, And they would cause more harm than they would protect you. I believe mm-hmm. in that environment. So it does not surprise me that they would get rid of them after a while. Probably got turned into toilet paper at some point and then discarded. Yeah. Cause I mean, at that point, you know, anything in a, anything in a, in a hard spot, but yeah, the heat just, I remember my first time doing a living history event. I was down in Naples, only one doing Marine Corps and I was like, it was hot as hell, but I was in HBTs. I had my cotton helmet cover over my helmet. The guys doing the army impression with the wool shirts on the, the metal helmets that the sun just beating down. Those guys are getting heat stroke. I mean, I remember seeing them all piled in a pyramid tent, pouring water on their helmets, cool them down, pouring water on themselves. And I'm just standing out in the sun because, yes, it's hot, but I'm not in there wearing wools and the, you know, all the army gear. I'm out there in my HBTs and that's designed for that environment. And so I actually benefited from doing a Marine Corps impression versus the guys wearing the, the you know, 101st Airborne, the 82nd Airborne, or the Army Infantry wools and all that stuff. They were mm-hmm. just roasting, which is why we do more events here in the wintertime than we do the summer Mm -hmm. because it's just not conducive down here. Oh, I bet it gets brutal. You want to hear another paragraph? Yeah, please do. It was like a bell. So yeah, to jump ahead here right after the airfield attack, uh, the heat was incredibly intense. The temperature that day reached 105 degrees in the shade. We were not in the shade and would sort of 115 degrees on subsequent days. Corpsmen tagged numerous Marines with heat prostration as being too weak to continue. We evacuated them. My boondockers were so full of sweat that my feet felt squishy when I walked. Lying on my back, I held up first one foot and then the other. Water literally poured out of each shoe. Hey, Sledgehammer, chuckled a man sprawled next to me. You've been walking on water. Maybe that's why you didn't get hit coming across that airfield, laughed another. 
but that speaks to the intensity of not only the heat, but just the rest of that incredibly visceral experience right there. Yeah. So now how, this is, is visual. This is a visual, but for those of you watching on YouTube, this is my reproduction of from what price glory, which I think they did a lot of reproductions for the movie. Mm-hmm. As you can see, unlike, um, army rough outs, very little ankle support. Um, the leather collapses in on itself. But Show yeah. me. Yeah, there you go. I want to see what the. Well, I cheat. Inside. I do have ins. I had. I do have insoles in here. But basically, okay. if I took the insole out, you just got basically a leather inside. I mean, it's just. There, there's like, man. There's no cushion or padding or arch support or anything. No, the reason these are called rough outs, if you guys ever want, you know, the Marines called them boondockers, but the Army referred mm. to them as rough outs. You know why they call mm. them rough outs? Rough side of the leather out. Exactly. It helps to strengthen it and to allegedly um, interesting keep it stronger, and it cuts down on reflection. You don't mm-hmm. have the shiny side out. Right. But, yeah, you know, there are some companies that make a, a, a better reproduction, but once again, during wartime, I'm sure there were some that came out just as flimsy. I mean, you're talking about wartime production. You're talking about lack of material. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at this shoe and you say, that looks awfully familiar to what the guys wore and no brother for wear out though. Well, <laughs> it's 10 years prior to the war. I mean, this was basically the same style of shoe the farmers wore. I mean, this is what got people wore. I mean, this was the boot mm-hmm. of the era. The only difference yeah. is, is they had a, a better corded sole. But that you, looks like a fairly lightweight shoe. Yeah. Compared I mean, to, yeah. I mean, compared to, um, well, here, hold on. Talk while I get my other boot. So that looking at that, I mean, I remember my dad talked a lot about the the boondockers, as, as he always called them, and he certainly called them that with the old breed, but he, he described them as their field shoes, and it's certainly what they wore all through combat. For you guys listening to the audible version, I understand it's a little visual, but it's a little treat. You can go watch YouTube. So we just went over the boondocker, the rough out. I don't have Army rough outs, but I do have the Army Type 1 service boot. And as you can see, yes, hypothetically, it's the same construction, but the leather's better. It just, you know, it's just a, that has the toe cap, which Mm -hmm. holds up better, has a completely different sole. This is a far heavier shoe. And then obviously you have the Airborne Cochrane. Mm-hmm. It's very same exact sole. Only difference is, is on the the heel. It's rounded off, so it doesn't get stuck on the door when you're jumping out, and it has ankle support. But mm-hmm. other than that, it's primarily the same as the service boot. You got your toe cap on there. But to answer your question, yes, compared to the service boot, the Boondocker. I mean, it's similar in weight because they both pretty much have a similar sole. They got the the thick mm-hmm. heel on them. Um, the service boot does have the leather um, midsection, whereas the Boondocker was all. These are these aren't one hundred percent correct. These say Goodyear on them. Truth mm-hmm. be told, the original ones had what was called a corded sole. It had cording braided through the rubber. Um, there mm-hmm. was a company for a while that was this one tried to recreate it with the appearance. You can kind of okay. see the texture. Yeah, it, it's not. 
completely authentic. There was a company out there for a while. I was putting them out there, but those things were like $300 a pair. <laughs> But, wow! But yeah, those are the those are the boondock or the Type One service boot and the the jump boot. I will so say, so the the service boot, the Type One service boot, would have been worn by Army soldiers in the Pacific. Um, no, by the time they got the Pacific, they wore uh, rough outs or double buckles. Actually, no, they wore they, some of them would have worn those, but those were primarily seen um, more in um, D Day. In the European okay. theater, uh, you would have seen some of them, but I think a lot more of them wore rough outs in, in the it, um, in the Pacific. Interesting little tidbit, and I'm glad you showed the the two like that. That that's really cool. So, by the way, know, the paratrooper jump boot is five, and the service boot are far more more comfortable. Like I'll actually wear the jump boot or the service boot. Like when I'm going out somewhere, I'll wear them to work. The rough out, the uh, the boondockers, no in hell. <laughs> I'm not wearing those except that's, for the vents. That's crazy. My my dad talks about one the and this is a little unpublished nugget here mm -hmm. because it didn't make it in with the ovary, but I unearthed it going through the unpublished stuff uh, when I was working on my first draft. He talked about how when they first saw their their replacements from the 81st Wildcat Division on Peleliu, and he described you know described their their dungarees a little bit, but he also talked about their boots had what he, he described as a very practical looking buckle affair across the top. Yeah, um hold on one second. I can give you the exact history. Basically, um it was later in the war, forty four, um, World War Two boot. When did they come out? The double buckle boot came out, let's see here. Uh, let me just go to Wikipedia real quick. Actually at the front usually does a pretty good job of giving you history on them. Let's see here. Da, 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 da. First test in 1943, the combat service boot was approved in mass production in the late the year. Mass production began in January 44. These were manufactured currently with the Type 3 service shoe rough outs. By the fall of 1944, these have begun to replace older model boots, though they never totally supplanted them before the end of World War II. Um, basically, to get rid of leggings... The, the, so it was basically your rough out boot and then you had a leather strap with two belt buckles on them mm -hmm. and if you watch band of brothers like when they're um on the island or later right. in the war when they're starting wearing the m43 the green uniforms you'll see a couple of them with the double buckles and then you'll see but yeah um as the war went on they got the Jump it was primarily used for obviously the airborne. Some of the airborne got double buckles in the field, but the infantry they liked the idea of the ankle support that the jump boot provided and they mm. hated the leggings. And so, by putting the double buckle on there, it's the same height as the jump boot, but it still allowed them to, to get rid of the leggings and still have the key benefits of leggings. Which, what are the key benefits of leggings? Well. I never seen anything on paper, but just from wearing them and doing some thinking on it, as we saw with the rough out, the boondocker. Could you imagine coming off of a landing craft into wet sand without a legging? How quickly you would lose the shoe? Yeah, we saw Lecky lose his shoe on Gloucester in the mud scene. Somebody just fucking shoot me! The legging goes underneath the boot. It helps keep the boot on the feet keeps the mud mm -hmm. out of the boot and also if you think about it you're running through barbed wire 
it helps keep your pant leg from getting snagged around the ankle or on bob wire. Mm-hmm. But so by getting rid of the legging and creating the double buckle, which you do see in pictures of the Pacific of, uh, of Army soldiers wearing double buckles down there as well. So they were the rough out boot with the leather ankle strap on them. And um, I don't have a pair of those yet. Maybe one day I'll have a pair, but yeah. And then you had the curious thing of a lot of Marines, uh, of course, by later on, probably most of them ditched the, the leggings, but you had it, it before that, you know, a lot of them wouldn't, would not tuck the pants into the leggings. You know, they still wore the legs, but you know how they had the pants over the leggings. Or what I'm seeing a lot, because I'm getting ready to do an event in Alabama next year. Actually, there was an event in Ohio that I wanted to go to a Marine Corps event, but I didn't have to have the opportunity. And those Marine Corps events are very strict on the uniform code. And you'll see a lot of photos. A lot of guys actually tucked their pants into their service socks. So they still got yeah. rid of the leggings, yes. but they would you would see them with this big white balls because they would pull their big yeah. cotton, kind of like the work socks you see at Walmart for construction work. Right. They would pull their service socks over their pant leg to help keep you know, get the same benefits of legging without, because leggings after a while too, what tends to happen with leggings is your pants starts to get pulled up, especially in those boondockers. Then there tends to be a gap between the top of the boondocker and the bottom of the pant. And then your sock falls down into your boot. And so as you imagine, you got this legging on, you have exposed skin that's getting wet canvas rubbing on the back of it. So now you're getting more wounds on the back of your leg you got a sock that's falling down in your damn boot you can't pull up because it's underneath and you know so leggings sure. after a while just become a nightmare sometimes like when i'm doing an event i'll show up on friday i'll tie that legging on and i'll sleep in the damn things i mean mm-hmm. you can take them off but added benefit of leggings especially here in florida they keep the fire ants out of your boots <laughs> so when you're sleeping on the ground you know it, it helps keep the bugs out of your shoes so you know, depending on how I'm feeling, if I'm wearing my service boots and leggings, sometimes I'll take them off at night and take my boots off, or if it's cold enough, because once again, we do a lot of our events in the wintertime, I'll just, like, especially if I'm up in Georgia sleeping in my tent, mm-hmm. I'll just leave the boot, the legging on, and I, I literally just wear the same damn clothes all weekend long and just deal with it when I get home. I come yeah. home reeking. So what you reading, fella? Still enmeshed in uh, Ian Toll's Volume 3, The uh, Twilight of the Gods. So last week I mentioned I'm reading Four Hours of Fury by James M. Uh, Finland. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about how it's about the Army Airborne 17th Division. And a lot of people talk about the 101st Band of Brothers, 82nd Airborne. Mm-hmm. But 17th is really overshadowed. And what's interesting, yeah, big time. when the 17th was formed, it was created using um, members of the 507th from the 82nd Airborne. So some of these mm. veterans went on to form the 17th. And so I'm going to give you guys just a quick rundown of this book. Not the whole book. More importantly, it's the brief, just quick synopsis of the, the 17th Airborne Division because, you know, we want to shed light on people who served and everything. You know, especially that's not covered by other forms of media. Hold on, I got a cough. So here we go. We're going to give you a quick little synopsis 
the 17th Airborne Division's contribution to Operation Varsity, which Operation Varsity was the key operation to get the British Airborne and the 17th Airborne across the Rhine about four miles in to wreak havoc while the infantry came over what few bridges that we could kind of, like we've heard in other European theater operations when large water fronts were involved, we got to protect the bridges so we can get our men across. So Operation Varsity was the was the mission to get across the Rhine, and then there was like sub-operations. And so uh, we're going to call this the Leap of Valor, the 17th Airborne Division's contribution to the Operation Varsity. As the sun began to rise on March 24th, 1945, history was about to witness a remarkable display of courage, skill, and determination. Operation Varsity, a pivotal World War II mission, was underway and at its forefront was the remarkable 17th Airborne Division. With the airborne prowess, unwaving commitment to victory, the, vis- the division left an undeniable in- mark of success on Operation Varsity. The 17th Division was tasked with playing a pivotal role in the airborne phase of Operation Varsity, which aimed to secure the foothold across the Rhine River in Germany. Their mission was to drop behind enemy lines, seize key objectives, and pave the way for the advancing Allied forces. With the sky filled with aircraft and parachutes, the paratroopers of the 17th Airborne Division descended upon Germany, held territory with the precision and the determination. They faced intense enemy resistance, but their unwavering resolve fueled their push forward. Their efforts, dis- their efforts disrupted enemy defenses, allowing following ground forces to make significant advances over the Rhine. One of the most notable contributions of the 17th Airborne Division was the capture of the vital Londondorf Bridge in in Remagen? Remagen. Remagen. There I go, slaughtering words again. The Bridge of Remagen. The Londondorf Londondorf Bridge in Remagen. Despite heavy enemy fire at the bridge's partially and the bridge's partially deconstruction, the paratroopers managed to secure the bridgehead, ensuring the crucial crossing point for the advancing Allied forces. This achievement was not only facilitated by the rapid advance of German Germany, but also dealt a significant blow to the German war effort. Additionally, the division played a critical role in securing other strategic objectives, such as towns, road junctions, and strong points. Their ability to swiftly neutralize enemy resistance and hold these key positions with instrument was instrumental in securing the initial objections of Operation Varsity. The 17th Airborne Division's contribution extended beyond their airborne operations. Once on the ground, they seamlessly integrated with ground forces, effectively coordinating joint operations and providing crucial support. Their adaptability and versatility allowed them to transition seamlessly from airborne assault to conventional ground combat, reinforcing the success of the overall mission. The valor, sacrifice, and resilience demonstrated by the paratroopers of the 17th Army Airborne Division during Operation Varsity was nothing short of extraordinary. Their contributions provided pivotal, proved pivotal in other in the overall success of the mission, hastening the end of World War II in Europe and delivering devastation blow to German forces. But much like the 82nd and the 101st, not only did they have the airborne, but they had the glider riders. And uh, the glider riders provided a huge contribution to that war effort as well. Maybe we'll cover that on next week's episode. But yeah, um, the 17th definitely doesn't get the acknowledgement as much as the 
82nd and the 101st. Do you even know what the 17th patch looks like? I don't. So we all know what the 101st is. It's the Screaming Eagle. Or as Jeff so affectionately refers to it as the Barfing Chicken. Um, the 82nd Airborne is the the red square with the blue AB mm-hmm. logo. The 17th is literally just a yellow or golden, I guess I should say. Not yellow. Yellow means chicken. What are you, a yellow? A golden eagle talon just coming from the sky. Just a single mm-hmm. eagle talon. So if you ever see a golden yellow, I mean a golden eagle talon, that is the division patch for the 17th Airborne Division, which formed itself from veterans who did prime, most of the training from the 507th of the 82nd Airborne. So I thought it'd be kind of cool. I would have to look. But I'm sure there's probably photos out there with guys who have the the 17th division patch on their left shoulder and the 82nd on their right from where they served in both divisions. Yeah, probably so. That, that'd be kind of a cool impression to do as well. And so um, you got anything else on your list you want to cover before we wrap it up? No, I just want to mention if I could. Please. Uh, you know, sometimes you say you want to plug anything. Uh, right before Memorial Day, I think it's going to be the 26th or 27th. I'll be back on Ben Powers' show with George Loves Jr. Nice. You know, he, George Loves Jr. has been on there, and Ben had me on several weeks ago. And then George and I together will be, and Ben wants to talk to us about, you know, serving your father's legacies, sure. et cetera, et cetera. George, I, I follow George on LinkedIn, and he's been busy. He's been doing a lot yeah, of stuff. Yeah, they're in Normandy now, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I just saw something on Facebook from George. Uh, but, yeah, for sure, man. So I got that coming up. I wanted to just throw a shout-out for that. And we will, as always, include that on our website. If you guys aren't familiar with the website, there's a lot of cool stuff on there. You can go to com. We have how to reach us, where all our social media is at. There's a page called um, Appearances. You can see all the videos of all the other podcasts we've been on, um, all the projects that Henry's done. I haven't done it in a while, but there's a couple pages called History Through Photos where um, you see some nice shots of some of the items from my collection where I give descriptions about manufacturing canteens and different things like that we need to do on there. And uh, we have links to our videos and, more importantly, our merch store. <coughs> Woo! Yeehaw. Look at that. Look at that T-shirt. So the new, not only T-shirt, we have jackets, we have hooded sweatshirts, we have purses for the ladies. Um, we have the, not only the new, what's the scuttlebutt, uh, scuttlebutt, good scuttlebutts made to be shared shirts, but we also have the new logo. Oh, which by the way. Yeah. So you get twice for the price of one, you get the new logo on the front and the new logo on the back. So it's a double-sided shirt for the same price as a single-sided shirt. And we also have shirts with just a new logo on as well. They have what for some reason Teespring refers to as a bomber jacket, but it looks more like a tanker jacket. We have that up there with our logo on it. And then we have like just your normal coach jacket or windbreaker that has a logo on it. And so those items are up there. Um, I think if you use the promo code Pogi Bait, which is a World War II phrase for candy. Yes. Actually, I think on the shopping cart, it'll say use the promo code Pogi Bait across the top, and that'll save you guys some money on shipping. And all that goes a long way. Not only, it's to be honest with you, it, it's more beneficial just to get the word out there. We're not making. You know, it's not like we're getting rich off T-shirts, but we're more in it for getting the word out there. So we make the prices as low as we possibly can, and we want you guys to enjoy the shirts, the quality, um, and help spread the word. So please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and get your shirt. 
And for myself, Jeff, and Henry, we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 